Blood on the River, Chapter 7. Such factions here we had as can commonly attend such voyages that a pair of gallows was made, but Captain Smith, for whom they were intended, could not be persuaded to use them. That was written by Captain John Smith um, in his book called The True Travels, Adventures, and Observations of Captain John Smith. So here's the beginning of chapter 7. <coughs> Excuse me. The next morning dawns clear and warm. Captain Smith is back in chains and the gallows sits ready. Reverend Hunt calls us together for Sunday services. We meet gathered around the tree where Captain Smith is chained so that he can join us. Reverend Hunt's sermon goes on for hours. I think maybe he will not stop until every single one of us has promised never to sin again. He says to tell a lie is a sin and that any man who lies for his own gain and does not repent will spend eternity in the, in the agony of hell's flames. He looks right at Master Wingfield and Captain Ratcliffe, delivering his sermon with passion. I see Master Wingfield squirm. Captain Ratcliffe sets his jaw and stares straight ahead. Captain Newport looks at the two of them and shakes his head. I send up a prayer that Reverend Hunt's sermon will save Captain Smith from the hanging, from his hanging. After services, I bring Captain Smith some food. I wonder if it will be his last meal, yet he's calm. I've been a prisoner before, and I escaped before, he says. When I was a soldier fighting the Turks of the Ottoman Empire, I was captured and made a slave. They shaved my head, put an iron ring around my neck, and brought me to auction to be sold like a beast. James and Richard are nearby and they come closer to listen. The other slaves told me it was useless to try to escape. Impossible, they said. But one day we were working in the fields. I was threshing wheat with a threshing bat. My master rode up on horseback with his whip. He cracked the whip, brought it down on my naked back, lashed my skin open. I was enraged. I took my threshing bat in both hands and swung. He swings his arms as if knocking the cruel master from his horse once again. Down he came, and before he could get his footing, I cracked the bat over his head. Then I beat him with stub until there was no life left in him. No wonder Captain Smith is unafraid of these pale, weak gentlemen. And their threats. If he wants to, he will kill them with his bare hands. Then I shucked off my slave rags, put on my master's clothes, and rode off on his horse to my freedom. Captain Smith finishes his story. The three of us boys are silent. I admire his courage, and I admire the way he talks back to the gentlemen as if they have no right to lord it over him. I've never known another commoner who had the nerve to do that. Reverend Hunt comes marching up, a ring of keys dangling. He takes the keys to the, to the clamps on Captain Smith's ankles. I've convinced them that without you, a translator, we will all perish in Virginia, <clears throat> he says as the clamps open and fall away. Thank you, Reverend, Captain Smith says, rubbing his ankles. I owe you a favor. Reverend Hunt gives him a stern look. This is the favor I want, then. 
I want you at least act as though you have the proper respect for these gentlemen. If you insult them and anger them again, they may choose their pride over their survival in the new world. Captain Smith nods, and I wonder if he really does plan to be polite to the exalted gentleman from here on in. He's at least as stubborn as, stubborn as I am, and I know it will be hard for him to change. That afternoon, the sound of chopping wood rings out over the rumbling of the waves. <clears throat> the gallows is cut up and thrown on the fire, where it nicely roasts our fish for supper. After six days on Nevis, I am fatter. <laughs> After six days on Nevis, I am fatter. The birds are so tame, we pluck them out of the bushes with our hands. The sea is teeming with fish, and the trees are full of fruit. The only natives on the island are afraid of us, and they stay well hidden. I am also cleaner. I have gone twice to the hot pools in the forest to bathe. But now Captain Newport says it is time to leave. We pack up the tents and cook pots, barrels we have filled with fresh water, meat and fish we have dried for the rest of our voyage, and crates full of pineapples, mangoes, plantains, coconuts, and wild bird eggs. We sail past the Spanish islands of Vieques and Puerto Rico. We stop on the island of Mona just long enough to get fresh water and for a group of gentlemen to go hunting. They leave in the morning, taking a few soldiers with them for protection from the natives. They dress as if they are going pheasant hunting on a cool English morning, in silk doublets, velvet breeches, stockings, shoes, and felt hats, with their powder flasks hanging at their sides. The group returns in the evening, exhausted and faint, carrying what the expedition has killed, two boars, several iguanas, and the gentleman Edward Brooks. Huh. They say Brooks' fat melted inside his body in the extreme heat. Captain Smith has a few choice words to say about gentlemen who are too ignorant to know they should carry enough water on a six-mile hike in the tropics and too ignorant to take off their extra clothing when they get hot. But this time he is wise enough not to utter these words where any of the gentlemen can hear him. I did not know Edward Brooks well. He was a passenger on one of the other ships. Still, it is strange to see his pale, waxy skin and his limbs stiff with death. They dig a shallow grave for Master Brooks, and we sail away, leaving him there on Mona. I have dreams that night that the cannibals find his body, dig him up, and eat him. I awake in a cold sweat. I try to calm down, reminding myself that this could not possibly happen. No one digs up a grave for food. This is the end of chapter 7. It's a very interesting chapter, so I want to talk to you about it for just a minute. I want you to think on what we've read. First of all, that's a really graphic image of what Captain Smith did as a slave when he battered the slave owner. And um, I, I want you to really look at that because it tells a lot about who Captain Smith is and his issues, like he said, with anger and violence. He doesn't have a lot of patience for people that don't understand what anger and violence are and that aren't, that underestimate him. He's very underestimated by these gentlemen. They don't realize um, how strong he really is. The other thing that I really want to point out that's super important 
is how these Englishmen come to an island. They don't interact with the people that live there. They take the food of the people that live there. They stay there and use the pools, take eggs, take fruit. Um, they do whatever they want and never interact with the natives. One, because they're afraid of the natives. Two, because they misunderstand them. But imagine this whole thing from the native point of view. Like, how would you feel if you and your family lived on an island and here comes all these English people from a different place and they take over part of your island where you have to hide. They use the pools. They hack they hack at all the wild and and the wilderness that's there and take down bushes and plants so they can make paths and then they you know they put up tents they forage all the f a bunch of the food the pineapples and the mangoes and the plantains and they even take the the birds and the eggs so i mean maybe they'd be willing to share maybe there was tons of food there and that's okay but i think it's interesting to note that these the English at that time really did feel like they had the right to go anywhere they wanted and to do anything they wanted and that the native people of that area didn't matter. They were not English. They were not white. They were not, um, they, the native people just didn't matter to the English people that came at this time. Now it, I'm just going to tell you, it. there's a foreshadow in here and a hint of what's to come. And Samuel really does change over time. And he learns what the native people can give them and who the native people really are. But at this time um, that we're reading, we're reading from a point of view that the English really don't respect the native people at all. And um, at the very end of the chapter, it says um, they dig a shallow grave for master brooks first of all i think it's interesting how the author presents that if you go back to um, the last chapter on page 50 at the bottom it says the group returns in the evening exhausted and faint carrying what the expedition has killed what the expedition has killed two boars several iguanas and the gentleman Edward Brooks. So the expedition, the, the group that went off hunting, she says that it has killed Edward Brooks. I find that interesting. And secondly, they dig a shallow grave for Master Brooks at the last paragraph on chapter 51. I have dreams that night that the cannibals find his body, dig him up and eat him. I awake in a cold sweat. Now, he's afraid of the native people, um, the Carib Indians, and he'll be equally afraid of the of what they call the Indians and the native people in the Americas when they come. But he has this dream that they, and I don't know if you guys know what cannibalism is, but it's where you eat other people when they die. Um, and sometimes when they're not dead yet. <laughs> and um, there has been historical of evidence that there was cannibalism and so at the end of this he says he's afraid that these Indians eat people well I'll tell you straight up what he finds out is they don't but somebody does 
And later on when it says, no one digs up a grave for food. That's a foreshadow. That's a hint of what's to come. So I can't wait to read more. And I hope you enjoyed chapter 7, even though it was kind of gruesome. <laughs>